Welcome to Data-Based Projections. Data is often the basis for how we see the world and how the world sees us. Understanding these data-based projections is the focus of this podcast, which discusses topics related to data analytics, machine learning, and data science. Produced and hosted by Jim Harris. Back in 2012, Harvard Business Review published a widely read article declaring data scientist was the sexiest job of the 21st century. Less than a year after that article was published, I recorded a podcast discussion with an actual data scientist and PhD statistician, Dr. Melinda Thielbar, during which she discussed what a data scientist actually does and provided a straightforward explanation of key concepts such as signal-to-noise ratio uncertainty, and correlation. Even though the discussion was from nine years ago, I was happy to hear how evergreen it was, meaning it is still applicable today. What follows is an edited and slightly shortened version of that original conversation, since I think it provides some nice insight into data science, both then and now. Dr. Melinda Thielbar, welcome. Well, thank you, Jim. I'm pleased to be here. Well, we are thrilled to have you here because as someone who actually is a data scientist, could you help us out with defining exactly what a data scientist does? A data scientist liberates data. So a data scientist makes it possible for the entire organization to use the data products that are in the data. If you think about the skills you need in order to do that, There's this raging debate, do you need a PhD? Do you need to be able to write code? What do you need to be able to do? Well, in order to make the data accessible and fairly complicated analyses that you need in order to make sense of an enormous data set or a data set with a lot of different features in it, in order to do that, you need to be able to create a standalone product where the data comes in, the answers come out, and the person who's looking at the answer can actually understand what they're seeing. And there's a lot of skills in that. There is definitely a statistical analysis skill. There's definitely a software programming coding type skill. But there's also something that lives kind of more in the realm of computer science, which is being able to understand how to create something that lives by itself, that doesn't need to be tended constantly by someone with a whole lot of skills that can do a job that an end user can consume. So what a data scientist needs to be able to do is create data products, data consuming and data producing products that are usable by the larger organization. If you think about statistics, I mean, to people who are not statisticians, they see what comes out of a statistician work product, but the skills that go into that, I mean, there's deep understanding of the difference between signal and noise. That's really what a statistician brings to the table in terms of taking that raw data and turning it into meaning. There's a deep appreciation for the fact that the values are not always the same. Sometimes they're going to be high, sometimes they're going to be low. And detecting when that high or low value means something is a process that's partly math, it's partly skill, it's partly experience. But that's what a statistician learns to do. I would agree with that, especially with the high and low values in terms of outliers whether outliers should be viewed as insights or data quality issues. 
But one of the things that strikes me when a lot of people say that organizations should be hiring a data scientist, it's not that I disagree with that, but I think maybe as a precursor to that, organizations need to hire a math tutor just to get a refresher course on some basic math. Like the difference between a mean and a median and how those are affected by low and high values is basically high school math but is shockingly poorly understood by the average business person. <laughs> yeah, you are, you are absolutely right. I think part of the problem we have in teaching organizations is that they don't have that deep appreciation you're talking about. And, and you're right, it's not even a deep appreciation. It's a high school math that if you haven't used it since high school, you probably don't really remember it. But that appreciation for how those numbers get calculated and what you do with them once you have them. One of the often cited quotes by Mark Twain, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics, which is a quote that's often used by people who are very suspicious of what statistics are trying to represent. But as the Swedish mathematician Andreas Dunkist said, it's easy to lie with statistics, but it's hard to tell the truth without them. I'm totally in sync with what you say about mathematical literacy. Mathematical literacy is part of it, but also developing ways to put those numbers into a format where you have to look at the number and you can still get the story from it. So the story is there, but you can't manipulate which number you present or how you present it to tell the story you want. The numbers tell the story themselves. Sometimes it comes down to not defining exactly what we're measuring example of an accurate use of statistics, but somewhat confusing, would be the Verizon versus AT&T battle over coverage area. When Verizon talks about coverage, they're talking about geographic coverage. And I'm talking about the United States in particular here. They do cover a larger percentage of the geographical land area of the United States. AT&T, when they talk about coverage, they're talking about coverage of the population and that they cover a substantial percentage of the people who happen to live in the United States. So both of their arguments are statistically accurate, but they're not defining the term coverage in exactly the same way. In fact, they're both defining the term coverage from the way that makes their company and their product look better. That's a game we've been playing for as long as we've had numbers. I mean, that's, that's existed forever. And it does bring us back to this idea of surround, right? The number, you, you can kind of have the number sitting there, but it, it, it doesn't tell you anything by itself. It needs to be put into context. And so Verizon actually will show that map that has their coverage area on it. And that's a very powerful visual. AT&T is almost a probabilistic measure. Given who you are and where you live, you are more likely to have coverage at any given time, if you've got an AT&T phone. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what AT&T says. And so they lose on that visual because it's difficult to convey visually what that probability means. And certainly it's difficult to convey visually looking side by side on a map with Verizon. There's obviously a lot of data knowledge and mathematical knowledge and statistical knowledge that is necessary, but there's also a lot of business knowledge that's needed as well. And a lot of times business leaders bring cognitive biases to the data in terms of they almost put blinders on and they don't want to see the full story that the data is capable of telling them 
especially if it's telling them a story that they don't want to hear. If all data science told you was what you already knew, then no one will be excited about it. But because it does find things that you would not have considered, more often it butts up against the business leaders saying, well, that's not what we have been doing traditionally with our business, or that's not the way we would typically look at this business problem. And that's where I see some people in the data science or analytics space try to fix that problem by saying, oh, you just don't understand the math. Let me show you the math so you'll understand it. And the business leader is like, no, you don't understand. That's not what I want my business to be or what I think my business is. And we're actually talking past each other because two different philosophies are being used. The philosophy of data or the philosophy of math versus the philosophy of business and profit. Yeah, and I've hit up against that a lot. Once I was a manager and I had analysts reporting to me, I tried to kind of protect them from those bruises. When I was coming up, nobody knew those bruises were going to exist. And so I took some lumps with exactly the problem you're talking about, where I would be excited, I would show a business person what I had uncovered, and they would not be receptive because I had not messaged it properly to make it fit with what they understood and what worked for them. So the communication aspect, it is difficult to find people with the sort of training you want for your data scientist who are also good with people. <laughs> that's, that's a difficult skill. Those two skills don't necessarily get trained into you together. And in some ways, they're very different uses of your mind. So part of it is presentation. I did a lot of government fraud projects. And so I was working with people who were responsible for administering programs that were supposed to protect the most vulnerable people in our societies. So unemployment insurance benefits, Medicare, Medicaid. I mean, these were benefits that people desperately needed. And we were looking for fraud. So a bad fraud investigation, like a bad fraud lead where someone was doing everything right, but the data said they were doing everything wrong, could really cause some damage. And so the first thing I learned when I was working with that particular audience was how to frame the message so that they understood that I was helping them administer the program effectively. I had to help them streamline their process and work with their process so that if, if my model surfaced somebody who shouldn't really be investigated, there was enough supporting information that a business analyst could look at it and say, oh, no, well, actually, that claim is fine. I see why it looks unusual, but this other information that's not in the model, because it's usually not predictive, tells me, the person who's consuming the information, that I don't need to investigate. And also, I had to learn how to present the message. It comes down, in a lot of ways, to your audience and what you need to show for that audience. So what we were talking about with the Verizon map was a consumer, and consumers are a whole different ballgame people who are just going to try to figure out which product to buy. That's a completely different audience from a fraud analyst who's trying to protect a government program. It's a completely different audience from a C-level executive. And showing the right information to the right people in the right way is absolutely critical to making that application work. Statistical methods haven't changed for centuries. Bayes' theorem, which is the basis for probability, goes back to the 18th century. And for the most part, we still use the same principles in that. Although not to get into the whole Bayesian versus frequentist debate, which sometimes goes down a whole rabbit hole that business folks don't understand, but is an important point for statisticians. 
sometimes we have to meet in the middle and I don't want to say dumb down, but we have to bring the concepts down to a level where we can have a discussion and then business folks have to sort of raise up to that middle point to meet us there. But sometimes I fear that we're not really communicating and that we're still talking past each other. Yeah, well, and I think if you had what we consider a real surface understanding of statistics and mathematics, one of the things that made me think of was making sure the folks who need just that surface level of understanding have it and just letting it go from there, right? Just saying, okay, here's an outlier. This is a false positive. This is a false negative. This is the difference between a mean and a median. And here's how it affects you. Like each one of those statements gets a, here's how that applies to your world right now. And then just leaving the rest of it to the people who have that serious training. Like I'm technically a very savvy computer user. I'm a, I'm a very technical computer programmer, but I don't want to spend hours formatting my hard drive. I don't want to spend lots and lots of time optimizing my hardware configuration on my laptop. Those things do not interest me. I'm going to buy a computer that I open it up and it runs. The C-suite is the same way with data. They are not fascinated by the things that we find really exciting, the ins and outs of information, how information gets into the organization, the best way to collect it and hold on to it and and to share it out with the people who need it. We exist in the company because we are good at that and we enjoy it. The folks who are really our customers, they just want it to work. And they're willing to learn what they need to know to make it work. Like, I know how to install stuff on my computer, right? But... I don't want to hear hours and hours of the ins and outs and the intricate details of how an operating system is written. By the same token, your customers don't want to hear the ins and outs of the difference between frequentist and bays. They want to know how it affects them and how it helps them do their job. And they want to have the skills they need to get that part done. Sometimes I jokingly refer to big data as the data psychic. Because it's described as if, well, if we just look at enough data, we can just clairvoyantly predict exactly what's going to happen. One of the issues there is that generally, as humans, we don't like uncertainty. We don't like unpredictability. We don't like surprise. And the idea of understanding that any type of uh, analytical process is going to carry with it some margin of error or or some degree of of uncertainty. People hear the words and they say, "Uh uh-huh. But they really then get surprised when something happens outside of the prediction. How do you find a way to get people to be comfortable with uncertainty when you're talking to them about predictions or analytics or statistics so that they can understand that you're not giving them the one right answer, but there is a possibility that this might not accurately predict what's going to happen? Margin of error is a very technical term. When I'm talking to a non-technical user, I talk in terms of best case and worst case. And that seems to put people at ease because that range is something they can kind of wrap their minds around. One of the projects I'm working on is actually a project on power systems where I'm using predictive models to perform optimization. And that's an engineering audience. And if you think business analysts hate uncertainty, try working with engineers. Because of their field, they do not want any uncertainty. They want to know, I'm going to turn that switch and it's going to start and everything's going to be fine. And so when I put together those predictive models, everything in those systems is based on best and worst case scenarios. Best case, this is what we should do. Worst case, this is what we should do. And so you can actually let the person who's using that power system say, we're always going worst case. 
And even my incredibly safe version is usually better than what they're doing now. And it's the same thing when you talk to a business user about margin of error. The example that I had with the sales folks where it's like, okay, well, right now, half the people you call don't call you back. I can get that down to one in three doesn't call you back. Reducing the risk or reducing, in that case, wasted effort is definitely a a much better way of, of selling it. And talking about best case scenario versus worst case scenario is definitely better than talking about margin of error or definitely better talking about the average expectancy brought to mind the old joke of the statistician who drowned in the river because it was only three feet deep on average. (laughs) So that wouldn't really have helped, but knowing it was a foot deep in the shallow end and 20 feet deep on the deep end would know, well, don't walk in the deep end. (laughs) So yeah, having that best case, worst case scenario is definitely much better. And then also getting people to, we're not going to make you perfect, but maybe we can make you a little bit less wrong. We're still going to have errors. We're still going to have mistakes, but hopefully with the proper application of statistical methods, we'll make mistakes less often and the mistakes that we make will be less severe, but we'll never get all the way to perfect. That's a really good way to put it. Noise to signal ratio is something that comes up a lot. But one of the things I always like to look at is that phrase we coined by Roberta Waltzetter. And what she meant by those two terms was that signal is an indication of the underlying truth behind a statistical or predictive problem. And noise is the sound produced by competing signals. So not necessarily noise as we would typically think of it as bad data or erroneous data, but the noise caused by competing signals. And I think that comes back more to one of the terms I can't stand in the data management industry is a single version of the truth. (laughs) There is no single version of the truth. There are many versions of the truth, and it's often when they compete with each other that we have a problem. There is noise in terms of just complete noise, but have you had more trouble with competing signal? That's a really good question, and that does bring up one of the perennial problems in statistics is that there are true false positives. So again, fraud is where I got my start, so I usually bring it back to fraud. There are claims that look really suspicious, and then you bring it up and you see something that is generally not predictive that explains why it's suspicious looking, and you can close it right down. You know for certain this is fine. And that is an example of signal versus a competing signal. I feel like in big data, if you take the hyperbolic claims and squish them down to to something technical, what a lot of people seem to be saying is eventually we're going to be able to partition everybody, be able to stick each of them in a box so that the model for them predicts them perfectly. That will never happen. I don't predict me perfectly. Like if you look at all of my past behavior and try to figure out what I'm going to do next, you're crazy. That will never happen. So that idea of competing signals and what's predictable and what isn't predictable, I'm with you. That's something people seem to have a really hard time with. Like it's it's just hard to wrap your head around without a whole lot of experience failing at predictive models, especially when it comes to each individual person. I actually wrote a post called How Predictable Are You? poking a little bit of fun at what I call the myth of personalization. When we typically think of good predictive algorithms, people like to use Netflix as an example a lot. 
I'm not particularly impressed that Netflix can assume that I want to watch a Star Trek movie because I like Star Wars. Wow, it's <laughs> another movie in the science fiction genre. How did you possibly figure that out? <laughs> or for that matter, that my taste in movies is far more predictable than what I'm likely to order at lunch this afternoon, depending upon what mood I'm in. Or even then, what mood I'm in was obviously going to determine whether I'm in a mood to watch science fiction or or a romantic comedy, maybe a documentary film. But a lot of the things that get touted as having amazing predictive capabilities really are, are not about assigning each of us to our own individual personalized boxes, but it almost sells well to the conceit that we like to think of ourselves as unique human beings, but more often than not, we're a lot more like everybody else than we really would like to believe. And that's how a lot of mass-produced products sell really well. Like, I love the fact that Apple's products start with an I. And people think, oh, that's I for individualistic. You know, I, I'm an individual. I'm a unique person. And I make fun of that by saying, yes, be an individual by buying the same products that everyone else is. Yes. Yes. How many iPhones are there? <laughs> it's not that personalized. <laughs> is that another thing that makes you cringe? the overselling of the predictability of humans. Yeah, and you're right. The overselling of personalization culture rubs me wrong, too, because I think if your model's constantly surfacing what you think I like based on what I've done before, I am never going to see anything new. And that's not a good buying experience for me. And I would think that's not a good buying experience for a lot of people. So we're talking about the retail space. And to be fair, the marketing and retail space really seems to understand the value of data. When I talk to my friends who are in the marketing world, they seem to really understand the value of prediction in ways that I think a lot of other industries that may be able to benefit just as much, if not more, don't get it. So I give marketing a lot of credit for that. They understand the value of having information and using it. But you are absolutely right, this idea that human behavior is predictable. And one of the things that marketing does well is this idea of A-B testing. And I've always said to folks who are doing recommender models, don't surface the perfect prediction every time. Surface something that you think your customer is going to hate and see what they do. Because then you're turning around, you're testing the model. Because you can get that feedback loop on a recommender system. Well, of course, they buy what your model said. That's all they see. Retail and marketing are among the most savvy users of data and statistical analysis. And it's why it always makes me laugh when people who are almost staunchly anti-analytical almost ignore the fact of how expertly they are being manipulated by the retail and marketing industry who is applying the very techniques that they seemingly don't believe in to manipulate them. A-B testing is a fantastic example. So by isolating variables and making changes and seeing how that changes the outcome and running those types of experiments is so essential to science in general. And outside of A-B testing and marketing, that type of experimental mindset is, for me, the hardest thing for a business to accept if they're not in a purely retail line of business or maybe some type of scientific line of business. One of the things that A-B testing illustrates is how much more information you can get when you set up how the data is being collected. When I set up an A-B test, I am making some choices about how data gets collected in two different environments 
And then now that I have that information, I can actually make a much cleaner prediction. So the people who are using like Twitter to predict the stock market, which I'm really tired of hearing about, and I'm probably going to be surprised because someone's going to do it real well, right? (laughs) But that's all observed data. It's uncontrolled data, which means you've got a whole lot of competing signals in there. Those competing signals make it very difficult to suss out the true signal. And I've stolen competing signal, and I will use that forever, Jim. I really appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) I stole it, so we're we're both thieves. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things I would like to say about A-B testing is that, to me, that is what data science is really missing right now, is that examination of assumptions using experiments. So if I'm going to design a data algorithm that's going to consume data and surface a result to users, those assumptions need to be stated. The data you're using needs to be shown to meet those assumptions. But that experimental examination of your assumptions, that's severely lacking. I see very little of that. Correlation is not causation. This is something that's, I think, coming even more to bear in the era of big data. Anytime you analyze a sufficiently large data set, you're going to find a lot of correlations. But most of those correlations are going to have little to no predictive value. And even in the best of circumstances, it's very difficult to prove causality anyway. Brings me back to another old statistics joke that when it rains, people buy more umbrellas. But buying umbrellas doesn't make it rain. Have you encountered problems with people misunderstanding correlation? You know, it's interesting because I'm with you. If you say correlation doesn't imply causation, everyone at the table will nod because now it seems like everyone has heard that. So what I get a lot now is that I'll show a very carefully wrought analysis that shows you turn knob A and thing B happens. And someone at the table will kind of lean back and say, well, you know, correlation does not imply causation. So (laughs) I would say we've kind of got the opposite problem now. I think it's a misunderstanding of what correlation is. I think people are properly skeptical of spurious relationships. Why don't we start there? Can you give us an accurate definition of correlation? Sure. So I'm going to give you an accurate layperson's definition. Correlation means when Thing one changes, thing two also changes. And thing two might change by a lot compared to thing one. It might change by a little. But a change in thing one indicates that there will be a change in thing two. And so what you don't know is if there's a third unobserved thing that pushes them both. You don't know if thing one is causing thing two to move. The other problem, and Big data has a big problem with this, too, because of the timing of the signals coming in. You might have this really weird situation where thing one changes, it is followed in your data by a change in thing two. But because of the way you're observing it, thing two is actually causing thing one. The technical term would be the post hoc fallacy. When B follows A, it doesn't necessarily imply that A caused B. And a very simple layperson's example would be going on a diet and then losing weight. Did you lose weight because you went on a diet? And this is why you hear a lot of fad diets like try the all pineapple diet, eat pickles and pizza and pounds will just fall off. 
The reason that fad diets become so popular and seem to work is because if you just go on any kind of diet, you're probably going to lose weight, not because of anything to do with the diet, but just because you decided to, you know what, I'm going to pay more attention to what I'm eating. I'll eat smaller portions of whatever I'm eating, and maybe I'll go for a walk after lunch. But the diet itself had no causal relationship with you losing weight. <laughs> right. Well, and the other important thing to keep in mind is, do we need a causal relationship? So on the diet, I think asking for a causal relationship is reasonable, especially if someone says, oh, yeah, I'm going to charge you money and you're going to lose weight because of my diet. That's a reasonable time to ask for a causal relationship. But if it's X predicts Y, when I see X change, I know Y is changing. I don't care, right? I'm going to take some action to prevent Y, right? That, if that's all I need to know, X moved, I'm changing something to keep Y where I want it. That's all I need. doesn't have to be causal in that case. It's, it's not even important. So there's a difference between correlation and causation. The other question you get with big data, though, is that you're pulling in enormous samples at a huge rate. If you see one bounce in the correlation statistic, so you see all of a sudden X and Y have a huge correlation, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. If you keep sampling, that correlation statistic changes from sample to sample. What you're saying about false positives, occasionally a correlation between two things that have nothing to do with each other will be huge. And so that's where we get back to what I was saying about assumption testing, model testing. That's a huge opportunity for companies that are using big data because you can resample. You, it doesn't cost you millions and millions of dollars every time you want to do an analysis. I did it this second. I'm going to do it again and make sure that what I saw was what I thought I saw. The fascination with causality or whether or not a causal link is even necessary to be established is an excellent question because in some cases it's really not. And then the misunderstanding of correlation as a cause leads to all sorts of weird studies like employees who take breaks more frequently have increased incidence of cancer. Oh, well, we want our employees to be healthier, so we should make sure that they don't take as many breaks. If you think about it for a second, though, what are those employees who are taking frequent breaks probably doing on those frequent breaks? They're probably going outside and having a cigarette. <laughs> so is it the fact that they're taking a lot of breaks that's causing cancer or the fact that they're smoking cigarettes that's causing cancer? So yeah, you can find a correlation between just about anything, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. I mean, obviously in that case, there is a causal link between smoking cigarettes and cancer. Is there some aspect of data science that you think people need to think about that you would like to touch on before we conclude? I think if there's one concluding thought that's something we haven't really talked about, it's my opinion that a good data scientist shifts. Whether it's an analysis or a spreadsheet or an algorithm, if you're a data scientist, one of the key defining aspects of your work, which makes you different from an analyst or a statistician, is that you create products that live on their own and do work without you. And so good data scientists ship. You need to figure out ways to take what you're doing and make it accessible to people who are not able to do all of the things you can do. And I think that's an important defining marker for the field. A lot of people don't have that skill. And I'd like to work with folks on 
defining that skill, defining why it's important and helping other data scientists either develop it or people who want to be data scientists learn how to do it. Dr. Melinda Thielbarth, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks so much, Jim. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to Data-Based Projections. We're available on all podcast platforms. Extended show notes for all episodes, as well as playlists of related episodes, can be found at ocdqblog.com forward slash dbp. Until next time, may the data be with you, always.